Welcome to Season 2 of American Political History, The Second Wave, Lord Protectorate. The conscience of the Englishman's popular political body came into being with the rise of the English Civil War. The public was energized and radicalized by the spectacle of politics between Parliament and the Crown. New pamphlets and newspapers published all the sordid accounts of who said what to who in the gossip and intrigue from behind closed doors like never before. The general public would become, for the first time in England, rooting stakeholders, taking sides, and engaging in the political polarization for themselves. When the king would arrest parliamentary dissenters, the public would know who those arrested were and what they stood for, making those arrested public political martyrs against the king's general tyranny of everyone. Scotland had a passionate and charismatic brand of Protestantism led from the pulpit. In 1637, populist Scottish uprisings embraced this protest movement against the Church of England. In their view, the king had forced them to split from their God. In reaction, King Charles ordered the Scottish Parliament to be dissolved and ordered the arrest of anyone continuing to protest. The problem for the king, the optics of this, was a nightmare. The Crown's forces were arresting a bunch of old women who were refusing to be swayed from their piety. The presses wrote of, These scenes of the king's men arresting helpless, pious women right from inside of their churches. This quickly turned the mood in Scotland to revolution. A call from the pulpits of Scotland cried out that an ungodly king could be called to account and removed from their office. Unlike most of the European cultures at the time, the Protestant Calvinists viewed was that the obedience to the will of God discharges a man for performing his will to his ruler. Duty to God is above, not a part of a man's duty to a human king. More moderate groups within Scotland jumped on this bandwagon that the king was endangering their liberty, piety, and most grievously, the king was acting ungodly. There was a demand for a constitution of rights from the Scottish Parliament. King Charles responded by totally abolishing the Scottish Parliament, then began to raise an army to put down this revolt, which was and had been common practice for European kings facing revolts. But raising an army against this pious revolt, King Charles would make a massive miscalculation, because he decided to use his Irish armies against Scotland. The Irish army was predominantly Catholic. Now an invading Catholic army sparked long-held Scottish and English fears of a conspiracy to change the country to Catholicism. Their fears were set ablaze when Catholic troops, even Irish troops, even under the command of the English king, were used to conquer God-fearing Protestants. The English crown with Irish troops would battle the Scots in the Bishop Wars from 1639 to 1640. The results of this war was the king's maya culpa in the most kingly fashion possible, blaming misinformation for for the true situation because of my dastardly advisors. Lord Stratford, the king's premier advisor, would be put on trial by Parliament, and King Charles would be forced to sign his guilty verdict. King Charles would say a few years later, at his own execution, 
that it was just divine justice, for has having signed an innocent man's death warrant. The Scots in Parliament would demand an end to absolute monarchy, that Parliament must be summoned every three years, and the king must have Parliament's approval for taxes and appointments of ministers. Then Ireland revolted. Seeing Parliament defying the king as the precursor to the return of Parliament's anti-Catholic practices, Irish armies attacked English and Scottish Protestants in Northern Ireland. As this revolt in Ireland was being put down in 1642, Parliament and Royalists would break out in their own civil war over control of England. As battles were won and lost, the public, fearing retribution if a particular side won, would join in mass the other side, fueling a back-and-forth, long-trudging slugfest of a civil war. Parliament thought that winning on the battlefield would make the king agree to their terms of a limited monarchy. But King Charles had no intention of surrendering to rebels and traitors. When the royalist army was clearly on the verge of collapse, King Charles surrendered himself to the Scots, who he viewed as most lenient to his case. But without a king in England, there was an immediate power vacuum. The Parliament feared both this vacuum and that Oliver Cromwell, who had become famous in the prior wars, would seize the throne himself. They feared Cromwell because his model army did not have the traditional officer corps of sons of the gentry. Cromwell built his officer corps from common men that showed skill and merit. This type of army seems normal to us, but in monarchical England, the officer corps was reserved for those high-born caste only. Parliament viewed this army as filled with dangerously inferior people, unlikely to fall into line with the Church of England's vision of Protestantism. But these tensions of class had no time to play out, as King Charles had escaped to Wales, where he found a Welsh army that Parliament had, you know, forgotten to pay, so they swore fealty to the king and formed a new army to retake England. The Civil War would again break out between King Charles and Parliament's army, who was now led by Cromwell's model army. Cromwell's army would defeat Charles Welsh's forces, and King Charles would be brought back to London to be executed for his crimes. But King Charles had powerful friends within Parliament and the gentry who could have blocked this death sentence. To fix this problem, Cromwell simply removed 45 MPs from Parliament at the end of the army's bayonet, paving the way for a vote of execution that he wanted for the King of England. Cromwell's army, stationed now around London, made demands of Parliament. The new model army didn't need Parliament's blessing or oversight. That Parliament would remove all royalists from within it, and an English religious society independent of congregational preference. The new Parliament would pass all of this without hesitation and would be referred to as the Rump Parliament. Cromwell was then named Lord Protector of the Realm. Cromwell would engage in wars with at first the remaining Scot Royalists, then the Irish Catholics, defeating both of them and forming the United Republic of the Four Kingdoms, England, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. Now the irony in this moment was that all of this civil war had started when Parliament felt their rights being violated but England was now being ruled by a military authoritarian dictatorship. This vindicated King Charles's point. Parliament had supposedly went to war with the king to protect their liberty and rights, but that it had instead created a warlord whose army would rule the nation. 
It was not Parliament that has always been the shield that protected the people of England from tyranny. It was the king that had all along been the shield of the people and protector of his subjects. Without a king, any warlord would simply rule with the largest army, and it would be the inhabitants of the country that would pay the burden of this continual warfare. The army's reign would not last past Cromwell's life. He would die in 1658. His son would attempt a few months to take the mantle of Lord Protector, but everyone knew it didn't fit him. The two political factors that led to the restoration of the monarchy, away from military dictatorship, was, first, that Cromwell didn't seize the throne himself. He viewed his mission with religious purpose to guide the country through this tough time, and he had the opportunity, but he never fully took the ambition to seize the throne for himself. Second, was that the army had forced Parliament at gunpoint, but the English passions for rights of Parliament was still the form of government the elites of England favored. They simply waited for their opportunity to take back their rights and end this rump parliament the army oversaw. Although initially out of power at the end of the Civil War, the English royalists were still alive and well within England. The movement began to restore the rights of parliament after Cromwell's death. And they saw the vehicle to do this, the restoration of the English monarchy. In 1660, Charles II returned to England, agreeing to share some authority on taxation and to ask for Parliament's approval for his appointments to court. Almost two decades of civil war, the king's son, Charles II, agreed to a power-sharing deal that was offered before all of the wars started. Some changes in paradigms of society just have to be paid in blood before people change. The English Civil War, when measured by percent of population death, had almost three times the death toll on the United Kingdom than the United Kingdom would face during World War I. And within the crowd of voices vying to shape the future of England after the Civil Wars, there was a small group of mostly women radicals who demanded that the laws should have the people's consent and there should be a leveling to the political order so that Anyone of any station could partake within Parliament. They would be derided in 1607 as the levelers and batty old women. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again and until next time.